Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Good to see all of you uh, this morning. If you want to follow along with today's reading, uh, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you, and you can use that or you can use your device. Uh, The Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, or our Bible, we might say, begins with a cosmology, an origin story. Where do we come from? And it begins actually with two cosmologies, two stories, two narratives. The first is a poem that's 14 stanzas long that we find in Genesis chapter 1. And it begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is central and foremost in the beginning of our scripture. Genesis chapter 2 is not a poem, it's a story, and it begins with, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And so you have in the beginning of these origin stories, the earth, which could also be translated as land or dirt, features prominently and centrally right from the beginning. Hebrew scholars agree that the land or the earth is actually the most central theme in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew scriptures. It's everywhere. And not only does it begin with this, but what we begin to see is a deepening connection between human beings and the earth. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God formed human beings from the dust of the ground. Even the word human is a play on word with the dirt. In Hebrew, the word for ground or dirt or land is Adama. The name for human is Adam, which means if your name is Adam, your name literally means dirt. You should call your parents on the way home and be like, what was that about? There's this deep connection that we come from the earth. We are connected to the earth in our very selves. And the connection deepens because the first command that God gives to human beings in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 is work the ground, work the dirt, and care for it. And the word there for work is not just this like you have a job to do. It's the same word used for a priest's work in the temple. It speaks about this worship, this sacred vocation, this sacred occupation. The ground, the earth, is the most central theme in the Hebrew scriptures. It begins by featuring in the opening words, we're told that we come from it, and we're told that we're connected to it in the work that we do. By the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, if you know the story, there is a man and there is a woman. They are naked and they feel no shame. It speaks toward the harmony between humanity and the earth and God, this deep connection that exists, this shalom, we might say. And then at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, everything goes sideways. 
There's a serpent, there's a temptation. The serpent says, hey, don't you want to be like God? They forget that they're already made in God's image, and they say, yes, we do. And so they eat the fruit that God's commanded them not to eat from, and their eyes are opened. They see right from wrong, and they go into hiding because they're ashamed now because they're naked. They've lost their freedom. And what's interesting is the result of this action, the result of this disturbance of shalom, what we would call sin, is domination. Domination. All of a sudden, what's hap- what used to be harmony is now the man trying to dominate or oppress the woman. It's the man trying to dominate or oppress the land. It's the women giving themselves over to childbirth and to pain and anxiety and worry. It's domination all over the place. And God says to the man, here are the consequences of what you've done. And this is where we are in Genesis chapter 3. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground, the dirt, the earth because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Up until this point, we see this deepening connection between humanity and the earth, and now the consequences of the disturbance of shalom is you are now in a place where you will no longer be connected to the earth, but you will struggle with the earth. You will struggle to get from the earth what it longs to give you. God then, in another symbolic gesture, bans the man and the woman from the garden, and we're told that they have two children. One is named Cain. He becomes a gardener. One is named Abel. He becomes a farmer, a man of the cattle. Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God one day, and it says God looks at Abel's with favor, but upon Cain's, he does not look with favor. Cain is upset about this. He's upset that his brother has received favor from God, and he hasn't. God then has a brief conversation with Cain, but Cain decides to take matters into his own hands, and he leads Abel out into the field, and there he kills kills him. God speaks to Cain and says, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? How should I know? And God says, well, I know, because your brother's blood calls to me from the earth. Once again, we see the earth playing almost like a character's role in the middle of this. And then in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God speaks to Cain about his consequences for murdering his brother. He says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now you, Cain, are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Starts with central, the earth starts being central. It shows our connection to it. It shows our invitation to participate with God by working it. And then we see the disturbance of shalom. Then there's a struggle with the ground. Now you have Cain who's cut off from the ground and he will forever be a restless wanderer on the earth, but disconnected from it. This ancient wisdom shows a pattern that we begin to see throughout the Hebrew scriptures. That connection 
to the earth is a blessing. A blessing is something that can only be received. It cannot be something that's taken. But when there is any kind of dominance or violence that is participated in, there is then a disconnection from the earth or a loss of connection to the earth. It's a consequence, or in the ancient mind, it's a curse. Connection is blessing. Disconnection is a curse. If you know where the story goes from here, it's not good. You have Cain and Abel, and then all of a sudden, just think like this whole sense of evil and wickedness begins to proliferate. Eventually, God calls a man named Noah and says, Hey, go build a boat because I'm going to flood the entire earth and I'm going to start over with you and your descendants. And that's what God does. Noah and his, descent, or Noah and his sons and their wives survive the flood. They begin to have kids, but once again, things begin to spiral downward until we come to Genesis chapter 12 which is kind of like a restart, or maybe we could say a reboot in the Bible. That God begins with Adam and Eve, but now he's going to start over with a man named Abram and his wife Sarah. Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land, the earth, the dirt, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, or Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Central to the promise given to Abram is land, earth, dirt. In the first five books of the Bible, this promise that we read in Genesis chapter 12 is repeated 32 more times. That somehow land is connected to blessing, is connected to us being connected to the earth. This is God's promise to Abraham. Land features centrally. And in the ancient consciousness, in the ancient wisdom, they had this understanding that somehow we are deeply rooted and connected to the earth. And I want to suggest that we seem to know what ancients intuited. I mean, we live in Colorado. How many of you, by the way, moved here? Can you raise your hand? Yeah. We're the people that actually go into the mountains. Like, you ever met someone who, like, uh, grew up here? You're like, do you ski? No. You complain about how crowded everything's are. Well, if you don't go to the mountains, just move east to the Midwest where we all came from to be outside, (laughs) right? You ever heard this phrase? I really connect with God through nature. Have you ever heard that? Why is that? I don't know. I asked you. Like, what is it about a tree That just is, I mean, if you take a moment with it, it's so stunning. This thing that roots itself down into the ground, communicates with all other trees that are around it through some weird electrical impulse, rises up to the sky, loses its leaves every year, grows its leaves back. What is it about, like, when when you're hiking and you get above tree line and you look out and you see all the peaks of the mountains, what is it about that that takes your breath away? 
What is it if you've ever been to the beach? What is it about the sound of the ocean that's somehow calming? Why is it that when someone says, yeah, I really connect with God through nature, no one ever goes, I don't believe that, or that's terrible, or you shouldn't, like, we're all like, yeah, I get it. Why? Is it possible that there is some deep connection that is a gift to be received that the ancients intuited and wrote about and pointed to and talked about even in the earliest cosmologies? And today, we're still living in a way that suggests, yes, this is true. It's interesting, research actually points out that this is true. There's now verifiable, demonstrable research that shows that somehow there is a connection beneficial to us when we are close to the earth. The research starts off kind of depressing, I have to be honest with you. It shows that the average child in the United States of America spends between four and seven minutes per day outside. That's the same amount of time as an inmate at a maximum security prison spends outside per day. Well done, mom and dad. (laughs) Or should I call you warden? Compare that with the fact that you're getting uncomfortable. I get it. That's fine. (laughs) I'm here to poke the bear sometimes, not always just say everything's going to be okay. Like, no, sometimes it's not. Not if we're spending four to seven minutes outside a day. Compare with the fact that children spend around seven and a half hours per day on a screen in the United States. And people walk around going, I don't understand why we're so anxious and depressed and have all of these health issues that we've never had before. Rightfully so, child development specialists and psychologists are sounding the alarm. And you know what they've discovered? That the healthiest thing for kids is unstructured playtime between 30 and 60 minutes a day in nature, outside in wild or semi-wild places. That can be parks away from the play structures or open spaces that we have all over around Denver and around the city of Denver. Now, what it does not mean is signing your very young child up for a sports team who are then given a jersey who go onto manicured artificial turf that has spray-painted lines around it so parents can sit in their camping chairs on the sidelines hovering a little bit closer as helicopter parents while day drinking and yelling at the other parents of the kids from the other team and the referees and calling it family time. That's not what it means. What it means is allowing your child to be out in nature to get dirty, to use their imagination. And what they're showing is when kids are given that 30 to 60 minutes each day, their intelligence goes up, their creativity and problem-solving skills go up, their anxiety decreases, their depression decreases. Like it's healthy. They've even been doing research now on adults of what happens when adults go out and spend significant time in wild places. And they've shown that anxiety and depression decrease. They've actually shown that physiologically, things like diabetes and high blood pressure, the symptoms can wane and become less simply by spending time connected to and close to the earth. They've shown that like the symptoms and the effects of ADHD are lessened the more time we spend outside. Somehow we know that the earth and us are connected, that there's this sacred connection and it's all a gift. 
I lead uh, retreats from time to time, and I just did one actually in North Carolina a few weeks ago. And one of the things I do is I send people out into the woods for about two hours. And when I send people out, you can tell pretty quickly like how comfortable people are or are not in the woods. Like I'm not profiling here, but when one guy showed up wearing dress shoes, wool dress pants, and a merino wool turtleneck and was like, I'm ready for the woods, I was like, no, you're not. But this is going to be great for all of us. And what's funny is as uncomfortable as people get when I'm sending them out into the woods, they all come back and there's a different spirit about them. When I was at this retreat in North Carolina, there was this one woman who was there who just had this like kind of like frenetic energy the whole weekend. So she comes back after her two hours of wandering around in the forest and we're sitting down and everyone's just reflecting on their time. And she talked about how there was this moment where something washed over her that she couldn't explain. And then she's like, and I got to be honest, I got up and I hugged a tree. (laughs) And she's like, I felt at home until somebody else walked down the path and looked at me. And I just kept hugging the tree. Like, I didn't know what to do. And whenever I hear people share, I always just say, what do you think's happening out there? I connect with God through nature. Why? Have you ever laid down in the grass or in the woods and had a sense that you're not laying on the earth, but you're being held by the earth? Have you ever taken a long walk through the woods by yourself and had a sense at some point, I am home? Have you ever swam in the ocean waves and as you're carried along by the incredible force of the water had a sense of like, I belong here? This is the gift. It can't be taken. You can't wrestle it down. It can only be enjoyed. The ancients said, yeah, this connection that we have to the earth, it's a blessing, all of it. But when we seek to dominate, when we pursue violence, when we seek to get on top, well, then we're disconnected from it. That's the consequence. This pattern that existed in the ancient uh, text was picked up on by the prophets, Because what happened is, over time, when the people of Israel moved into the land that God had promised to their father Abram, instead of enjoying the land, instead of enjoying connection to the land, there were some who used power and dominance to begin seizing more and more land. They no longer saw it as a gift. They saw it as something to be possessed. They saw it as something to be owned. They saw it as a revenue generator, as something that could increase wealth. And so the prophets began speaking out against these people. Isaiah in chapter 5 says this. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Micah in chapter 2 says this. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. They rob them of their inheritance, and inheritance is a gift. The prophets come along and say, you think that this is okay? It's not. Don't forget, God said when you moved into the land, the land remains mine. You are here as me giving you a gift. You're here as my tenants. Don't ever try to permanently sell it or permanently own it. It belongs to me. The psalmist says the whole earth, the whole land is God's. It's a gift. 
And yet somehow, over the course of time, landowners and the wealthy and the powerful began to seize the land, and they did it through legal technicalities. They did it through shady deals. They did it sometimes through brute force. And the prophets said, be careful, because if you take this land, you're going to be disconnected from it. And the disconnection that they talked about was that you would lose the land, or the land itself would be devastated. And if you know the history of Israel, this is exactly what happened. Assyria came in and uh, they, they, they conquered the, to, or the 10 kingdoms in the northern part of Israel. Babylon came in later and they exiled the people of Judah, the last two remaining tribes. They were forced off the land. Why? Because they practiced dominance in violence and they were disconnected. It was a consequence, a punishment for the way that they'd lived. Yes, they returned to the land under the leadership of King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. But if you know, over the course of the next four or 500 years, they continued to be pummeled and conquered by empire after empire who said, we will control this land and we will do so through dominance and we will do so through force and we will do so through violence. And all the while, those who were dispossessed, the poor and the peasants, those who had their land taken from them, those who enjoyed this land that was farmed by and tilled by their great-great-great-grandparents, now were farming and tilling land that belonged to somebody else. And they longed for the day that the prophets spoke about when they said, God will restore you. And what will he do? What will be a symbol of that? He will bring you back into the land you will once again enjoy connection to this in a way that the ancients did. A symbol of blessing. You can't take it. You can't get it through dominance or violence. You can only live with open hands ready to receive it. This is the backdrop, the history, the geopolitical reality that was swirling around in the cultural moment in which Jesus spoke the Beatitudes. It says in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus walked up on a hillside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, the land. It's a quote of Psalm 37. You will inherit the land. Not blessed are the meek for you're finally going to get your chance to take it back. Now you're going to inherit the land. It's a gift to be received. You are blessed because this is coming your way. The day where there's a reconnection with God in the land, a symbol of blessing that God wants to give you. This is what it means for them to inherit the earth. It means that they are receiving gifts from God. And this is coming to the meek. Now, meekness is kind of a hard thing to talk about. Not because, because the word itself in Greek doesn't really have a one-for-one -one translation. The word in the Greek doesn't actually have a way of, of transferring into our modern English in a way that we go, okay, I get it, it makes sense. And so it's actually harder to define meekness, and maybe it's better to describe meekness. And so here's some ways of describing meekness. Not easily provoked by wrong. Do not sulk over offenses. More ready to endure everything 
than to pay the same back. Next slide. Those, meek are those who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one. It's those who do not employ violence. The meek are those, the meek person says, nothing I have is mine. It's the result of a divine gift. This changes my relationship to everything. Blessed are those who do not use force against anyone, who, after being harmed, readily pardon the injury, who would rather lose something than fight for it, who regard harmony and tranquility of mind more valuable than a large estate, regard quiet poverty more desirable than quarrelsome riches. Rebecca Eklund says this, the meek are those who yield, not out of fear or lack of strength, lack of strength, but deliberately for the sake of the other and for the sake of Christ. Rather than strike back when mistreated, the meek pay back good for evil. They turn the other cheek. They bless the enemy rather than curse. They love and pray for their persecutors. In other words, the meek are those who in Jesus' day had been ripped off, had been dispossessed, had been used and chewed up and spit out. And yet, even though the land was rightfully theirs, they refused to employ the same means used to take it from them to get it back. Though they were dominated, though there were violence done against, against them, they said, I'm not going to do that in order to get this back because I know you can't take this. It can only be received. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to hit back. I'm not gonna... No, I'm just... Because that's not how it works. This is a blessing to be received. And Jesus says, if you're living like that, You're happy, which is what the word literally means. You're blessed. You're well off. Now, some of you are listening right now, and you're like, man, I was with you, like, pretty much through the whole thing, but are you nuts? (laughs) I mean, do you know the way the world works? Have you seen who has the most? Have you watched Yellowstone? It's not the meek who get the land. I mean, wake up, man. I mean, this is, don't get me wrong, it's the words of Jesus, and this would make a great Christian bumper sticker. I'm kidding, there's no such thing as a great Christian bumper sticker. (laughs) But it's not real life. And if you are thinking that, I get it. Because we live and we breathe and we swim every single day in a culture that says, no, might makes right. However you need to silence your opponent in a debate, in an argument, or on Facebook, do it. Who cares? Because the ends justify the means. And so if you belittle them or you make them look like a moron or you call them names or you assassinate their character and you win, good for you. I mean, we're people who like, we enjoy hostile rhetoric as a corporate community in the United States. And people are like, I don't know that I do. Yes, we do, because look at the media. They just continue to blare it out there because they know we keep clicking on it and we can't get enough of it. We enjoy it. And we not only enjoy it, we employ it. We are those who believe that somehow the march of history is determined by the leaders of armies and markets and political parties. And if we want our turn at the table, we have to employ the same means they do. In this way of thinking, this might makes right, it is not only supported by and encouraged by, it's employed by people who identify as Christians. Now, do you guys know what the problem is with that? It's the answer to every Sunday school question. Jesus. 
Jesus is a problem. That's going to be a really weird soundbite if somebody finds that one. Jesus is a problem because Jesus didn't employ the same methods that the dominant and powerful and violent culture did. Which is interesting because if you look at the church today, regardless if it's conservative or progressive or in between, we largely reflect our culture of dominance far more than we reflect the Jesus that Matthew refers to as lowly and meek. I mean, if we're going to be really honest, in the estimation of the culture of the United States, Jesus was weak. He got pushed around. He got stepped on. He was in a place of marginalization and didn't fight to free himself of it. Instead, he fought to stay in it with those who were already there. Jesus, we're told, was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was falsely accused. He was whipped. He was spit on. And you know what? He didn't respond to those who did that to him, not one time. Jesus was nailed to an instrument of torture that we call the cross, the Roman instrument of execution. And while he was hanging there, there's a group of people there mocking him. Hey, Jesus, call on your dad. Bet you he could send some angels for you. What's wrong, Jesus? Can't you come down from the cross? They're looking at this meek savior saying, what's wrong, Jesus? Aren't you strong enough? And the answer is yes, he was strong enough. Strong enough to stay on that damnable stake instead of coming off it and die for humanity. Strong enough to stay there and forgive those who had beaten him and spit on him and nailed him. Strong enough not to return an insult, but to love those who conspired against him. Strong enough to, while he hung there suffering, say, hey, dad, forgive them. They don't get what they're doing. This is the meek and the lowly savior we've named our faith after. Jesus shows us what true strength looks like. The idea of meekness being weakness actually wasn't something that was ever considered to be weak until after the 18th century. Before that, it was seen as a virtue. Before that, it was shown, seen as someone who was displaying power because they knew what it took and the kind of internal resources it took to be someone who didn't strike back, who didn't hit back. And Jesus invites us on this path. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me. We're going to go and whoop some ass. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me. You know what we're going to do? We're going to oppress a certain group of people and talk about how much God hates them. It's really going to go over well. And we will just kind of rally around that battle cry. No, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And this is, by the way, is for everyone. No excuses. Let's not forget that Jesus was already a marginalized and oppressed person saying this to marginalized and oppressed people. Because it can feel really tempting to be like, well, I don't know if that's for me because, no, 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 it's for everyone. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus' invitation is consistently to die, to turn the other cheek, to love and pray for your enemies. It's meekness. And when we live any other way, in some ways we're saying, I'm not going to follow you. But Jesus says, you want to know who's really well off? The people 
who refuse to employ the same practices that allow other people to dominate. That, that is who is really well off. And of course it doesn't make sense in our current cultural context. Of course it doesn't make sense when we live in the belly of the empire. We forget oftentimes that Jesus wasn't speaking in the context of empire. Jesus was speaking in the context of kingdom. And he even said, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. As it was, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the empires of this world. It's wholly and radically different. And if we consider that, then maybe these words begin to make sense. But it's no surprise that we struggle hearing them. Because meekness to us it just means you're going to get tread on more. It just means you stand to lose more. It just means you're going to get slighted even more. But I have to believe that Jesus knew that. I have to believe that Jesus actually experienced that. And no matter how difficult that seems, Jesus didn't forget that the land can't be taken, it can only be inherited. This connection with the divine this sacred vocation, it cannot be taken, it can only be received. In our context, this particular beatitude is a paradox. Two seemingly opposite truths that don't connect. And I'll be honest, as I was trying to figure out what to say about this beatitude, I can't make sense of it. I can't. Now, I can tell you, like, here's what meekness means, and here's the land, and all this. I can't make sense of it, at least not in my strategic mind, in my, my dualistic mind. It actually reminds me of a koan. If you're familiar with what those are, a koan is a short story or a riddle or a question that comes out of the Buddhist tradition that makes no sense. It's things like, when two hands clap, it makes a sound. What is the sound of one hand clapping? You're like, I have no idea. They're like, right, exactly. And so what they do is say, go away and spend time with this. Meditate on it. Don't use your strategic mind to get there. Let it work you. Let the question, let the story do something to you. And I wonder, what would happen if just this week, you let this beatitude work you. What if we took time to meditate on it, to consider it, to not be in a hurry to dominate it by explaining it, but allowed ourselves to receive whatever it is the Spirit wishes to teach us? What if we began asking ourselves questions like, am I as quick to give offense as take offense? and therefore bring more suffering into the world? What if we ask ourselves questions like, does my life reflect one that is more defined by dominance in violence or by an open-handed expectation of receiving a gift? Would we ask ourselves questions like, are we really willing to forgive and pray for our enemies, those who seek to do us harm and those who've done us harm? What if we ask questions like, do I more quickly 
move toward hostility in name-calling or blessing in love and forgiveness? What if we let this blessing, this beatitude, work us? Not as something for us to figure out and stand over, but for us to sit beneath and receive whatever gift God wishes to give through it. Because whatever we make of it, Jesus says, blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who don't seek to employ the same practices that others before you have to get what they have. Because in the end, you will receive. You will receive the gift that can only be received from God, which is a deep connection to him and a return to your sacred calling. Let's pray together. God, these, uh, these are really challenging words. And yet you, you speak them over us, you speak them to us as an invitation, as an invitation toward a particular way of living. And as much as me, we want to resist or make excuses or point things out, I ask that before we get to those places, we would be those who would sit under the weight of these words spoken by your son, Jesus. That these words would work on us, that these words would work us. That you would give us the courage to reflect on how we avoid meekness, on how we pursue domination. And in doing so, be those who, in the pattern of Jesus, move toward meekness so that we might be inheritors of the many gifts that you give to us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all my siblings said together, amen.